Welcome to the Hashcast, a short show focused on mining Bitcoin at home, brought to you every 2016 blocks at the time of the difficulty adjustment. This is episode 359. Today is March 3rd, 2022. I'm your host, Econo Alchemist. This show offers you a chance to catch up on the last two weeks of Bitcoin mining stats, news, developments, home miner setups, and any breaking privacy implications. I hope you enjoy. Let's get started. The first thing we'll take a look at is the Bitcoin difficulty estimator. This is on bitrar.com. It looks like we're actually going to get a downward difficulty adjustment this time, negative 1.5%. You can see here we've got about two blocks left to mine in this difficulty epoch, and that'll bring us in... That'll bring an end to epoch number 359 and bring us into number 360. Last difficulty adjustment on February 17th was a positive, almost 5% increase. This will bring the difficulty back down from 27.9 trillion to about 27.5 trillion. So one article I want to point you at is the MinerDaily.com article, and this one's titled BTC Hash Rate Gains in 2022. And I like this article because they really break down how the mining rewards work, and they even give the equation that most mining calculators use, which is like the block subsidy multiplied by your hash rate multiplied by the number of seconds per day. And then you take that number and you divide it by the current difficulty times two to the power of 32. And the answer from that equation, for example, is like 503 sats. So that's 503 sats per terahash that you would get using the variables in this equation. Um, so you can go in and change that, or you can just use a mining calculator. But I do think it's important for people to understand that those mining calculators don't tell the full story. For example, I've been mining on slush pool with an 80 terahash ASIC for the last year. A year ago, on average, I was earning about 50,000 sats a day. Fast forward to today, the hash rate has increased by like 30% plus, the, which means the difficulty has also increased by roughly that much. And my rewards have not gone down 30%. Um, they've actually stayed pretty consistent. I'm still getting roughly 50,000 sats a day on average. Um, so, you know, there's more at play there. And in my opinion, I think it just kind of goes into like the variability you get with slush pool. So their payout structure is uh, pay per last end shares. Some days they crush it and they find a whole bunch of blocks and you get a more rewards in that day. And other days they don't find very many blocks and you don't get very many rewards that day. I think part of it is that amount of variability. You know, they have more miners come into the pool to provide more hash rates so they find more blocks but then they're dispersing those rewards among more miners it can kind of even out but you know i think it's important for people to understand that you know these calculators usually don't take into account the transaction fees they're just using the base block subsidy you know there's there's something else to it because in my experience it hasn't been strictly consistent with the difficulty percentage changes so if you're thinking about mining and you think oh well if the difficulty in increases 50% a year, then I'll be making 50% less a year from now. You know, that, that may not necessarily be the case because I've been doing this for a year. I'm not making 30% less than I was last year, even though the difficulty is 30% higher. So that's just some food for thought and my perspective. But yeah, you know, if we look at this, you know, here we are looking at March 3rd, 2021 to March 3rd, 2022. You know, right now we're at 27.9 trillion for the difficulty 
and it was 21.7 trillion. So yeah, that's like a 33% increase in difficulty, but my rewards haven't gone down 33% on average. They've stayed pretty consistent considering how crazy things have gotten. Yeah, I got more rewards right after the China ban and you know, the number does fluctuate, but you know, don't let the, the difficulty percentage scare you. Oh, and by the way, it looks like we're now in Epoch 360. As of block number 725759, that was the end of difficulty Epoch 359. Cool, so yeah, it looks like we ended up at 1.49% negative difficulty adjustment. Great, money in the bank. All right, let's move on to the Bitcoin mining calculator. We'll just refresh this. Just for a quick example, we'll use my miner for demonstration purposes. If we had 80 terahash and it was consuming 3,500 watts and we were paying the US national average 13 cents per kilowatt hour, you know, this calculator is going to tell you that your margin is $13,000, which means your it costs you $30,363 to produce a Bitcoin with all of these stats. So you're saving $13,468 per Bitcoin earning 35,900 sats per day. It's gonna take you a long time to mine one Bitcoin. So if you took 100 million sats and divided it by 35,964, then it's gonna take you 2,780 days to mine one Bitcoin divided by 365. No, that's like 7.6 years. You may not even get that much lifespan out of your hardware. You might. I mean, the S9s are going on five, six years old now, and they're still holding up like almost 30% of the overall Bitcoin network hash rate. Uh, so they might. Uh, the current ASICs may not even be profitable by that time, seven years from now, but we'll see. The point is you are probably not going to be spending like $43,000 in one shot to buy a single Bitcoin. You're probably going to be averaging into that position through either dollar cost averaging with a KYC service or paying upfront for a miner and then using the money you would have dollar cost averaged with to pay the electricity bill that will then earn you sats at a $13,000 margin. So if you're spending $10 a day dollar cost averaging with a KYC service, you're exposing your KYC information, you're opening yourself up to risk of a data breach and having your info sold on the dark net market. And unless you're taking custody of those coins from the trusted third party, then you have custodial risk in there as well. Plus that KYC service has to make some money off of you. So they're gonna be charging you fees and or they're gonna be like selling you Bitcoin on a, some sort of spread that like you're paying more for the Bitcoin than the actual spot price. Whereas if you're mining Bitcoin at home, you don't have your information on file with anybody. You know, in this scenario, you can get Bitcoin at a $13,000 discount. You're never gonna find that kind of discount at an exchange. So if you're taking $10 a day, buying the KYC Bitcoin through dollar cost averaging, you know, you're gonna be paying $43,000 for that Bitcoin today. Whereas if you spent the $10 on sats today, the $10 it costs you to run your ASIC, you're gonna get 35,000 
900 sats. You can't do that on an exchange. Even if the difficulty doubled, like let's change this, or not doubled, but went up like 50%, like to 40 trillion. Even at that point, that's where you're like just there breaking your break even point and starting to lose a little bit of money. So, you know, at that point, you got to think, well, you know, if I'm paying an extra $600 per Bitcoin, is that worth not having my information on file with a centralized custodian? Is that worth not risking my data to hackers? Is that worth not being subject to 6102 confiscation? You know, I, I think it is, you know, those are some things to think about, but you know, the difficulty can go pretty crazy. Like we can get a lot of hash rate added to the network before the average American paying 13 cents a kilowatt hour with a new gen ASIC is going to be in a position where they're losing money and needing to think about that decision. So I recommend thinking about it. Okay. Here's our hash rate chart. Remember this one is like in daily time windows. So it's pretty whippy. Got some really high peaks up to like 260 X a hash. The network didn't really hit 260 X a hash. Just kind of looks that way because of the daily time windows. For the most part, looking at it in like terms of the last three months, even on the daily windows, it's saying we're at 200 and we were at 181. So in the last three months, you know, that overall network hash rate has only gone up like 20 exahash looking at this chart. I like using this chart because it like averages those windows out over 14 day periods. So it really smooths out the hash rate. So you can see like the all time high, according to this was like 207, not 260. 60, like that other chart was showing at this, if we just look at the last three months, you know, we're looking at 200 exahash today compared to 158 exahash. So yeah, you know, 42 exahash difference. I think that kind of gives you a better idea than what we saw on this. You know, that's like double the hash rate difference than this chart was saying. So, you know, my point is if you're going to be basing any decisions off of these hash rate charts, like use one like this that has longer time windows with, you know, at least two week time windows that gives you a way better idea of what's going on. And you can make more informed decisions with a chart like this. Let's take a look at ASIC prices. This is the hash rate index. We're looking at the last year of hash rate prices in US dollar terms. So you can see before the China ban, ASICs that were as efficient as 38 joules per terahash and higher were selling for about $120 per terahash at the peak. If you're looking at a 100 terahash ASIC, that's like $12,000 at that time. And then the China ban happened and the markets crashed. Everything went down to about half and then things came back up after the recovery from the China ban and peaked at about $106 per terahash for the most efficient ASICs. And that's been tapering off the last couple of months. I do anticipate this being near the bottom of this taper. It's kind of a hard call because I don't think we're going to experience the chip shortages that we thought we were going to be experiencing. And I also don't think the US dollar to Bitcoin index price is going to get much lower than it is now. Kind of seems to me me, like whatever bottom was going to happen is already in and things are going to be turning around. I could be completely wrong. The market could totally crash and surprise everybody, but you know, we'll see. And looking at this in Bitcoin terms, as prices went down in US dollar terms, they kind of crept up in Bitcoin terms and even those have started tapering off. So the last time we saw something like that was, you know, during the China ban. And if we go back to the US dollar, like you can see like right around July, August of 2021, both the US dollar price took a strong dip, like 50% dip. And if you look at it in terms of Bitcoin price, 271,000 sats 
per terahash for the most efficient ASICs down to about 187,000 sats per terahash. You know, so that's like almost 100,000 sats, like 90,000 sat difference. So not as steep uh, of a decline as the US dollar terms, but you know, certainly a difference. You got to think if you're paying Bitcoin for your ASICs, like you may want to wait until this comes back down. And when is that going to go back down? Well, that's going to go down when the US dollar price increases, because the more Bitcoin is worth in US dollar terms, then the less Bitcoin you have to spend to get that value uh, for the ASIC. So, you know, those are some things to consider if you're if you're spending Bitcoin to get your ASIC or if you're spending US dollar to get your ASIC. One more thing we'll take a look at here is the break-even Bitcoin mining efficiency threshold. I have this set to the highest setting, which is 10 cents per kilowatt hour. I think that's more aligned with what the residential miners are gonna be paying, but that's as high as I can get it given those options. The point is right now, you know, at that rate, your break-even efficiency is 83 watts per terahash. So if you have a new gen ASIC that's 38 joules per terahash or under, watts and joules are, I'm using them synonymously here. You've got over 40 watts of headroom inefficiency. So I, I think the outlook for home miners is good. I don't see things drastically changing for home miners that would make this not make sense for most people anytime soon. You've got plenty of room in how much hash rate can go online and how far the difficulty can increase before you start approaching your break-even point. Prices in both US dollar terms and Bitcoin terms have been coming down, so I think this is a good time to buy. I think you've got plenty of efficiency headroom, especially with these new gen miners that are getting like closer to 30 joules per terahash. So I think that's a good outlook. Moving on to developments. Uh, one thing that I've been tracking is the Intel ASIC chips. So in looking at this article, you know, Intel chips were really not that efficient at all. They, they're they comparing their chip here to an Avalon A9 and a Bitfury Clark and the Bonanza mine. Like they this should be compared to the latest and greatest machines. This should be like an Antminer S19 Pro or a Whatsminer M30S Plus on here. The reason it's not is because this thing would look completely awful com comparing it to the newest generation ASICs. I mean, the new gen ASICs are running about 30 watts per terahash, and this thing is coming in at like 55 watts per terahash. It says here yielding anywhere from 30, from 54 to 60 joules per terahash. And again, I'm using joules and watts synonymously here. Overall, rather disappointing. Uh, there was another article that came out that had the BMZ2 specifications listed, or at least what they're projecting they're going to be able to do with the BMZ2, and they're saying they're going to be able to get 26 joules per terahash, you know, and they're going to set it up in a ASIC that can do 135 terahashes at 3,500 watts. I'll believe it when I see it, but I, I really don't think Intel is going to nearly double their efficiency in one generation. I And from what I've heard, this, this isn't even Intel's first attempt at mining hardware. I've heard that they've done this in the past and had very subpar results. And 
you know, we'll wait and see what happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, they've got their BMZ one here, 54 to 60 joules per terahash. Suddenly they're going to like double their efficiency with the BMZ two. I don't know. It could happen. Honestly, in my opinion, I, I kind of think the Intel news was kind of a flop. The efficiency just isn't there. One thing I am hopeful for is that it's going to like put more ASIC chips on the market and increase the supply. So that will help drive the overall prices down for from Bitmain and MicroBT, I, I would speculate. Again, there's just a lot up in the air and there's not a whole lot we can do other than wait and see what happens here. All right, let's move on to the next piece. Amanda Fabiano posted this tweet with a link to this article that Rachel Rybarzik, and I'm sorry if I butchered that last name, that she wrote about Stratum V1. And if you take a look at this article, it's 25 pages long. You know, it does take a little while to read, but there's a ton of good info in here about what Stratum V1 is, how it works, what Stratum V2 is, how that works, what the differences are between them. Um, so, you know, she outlines the history of Stratum V1, when it was implemented, when we needed a new protocol, and what's happened to the hash rate since then. You know, so she's really making a strong case for mining protocols upgrade. And I tend to agree, just in case you don't know, uh, you will know after you read this article that Stratum V1 communications are all unencrypted plain text. So, you know, this opens up miners to potential attacks of having their hash rate siphoned off by like a malicious ISP, or even if the, the hash rate isn't getting siphoned off, even if you're not being actively attacked, you could be put on a list just because it's easy for your ISP to identify that you're mining. If you're not taking any measures like running your ASICs behind a VPN, like I propose in my guide, using multiple VPN tunnels to reduce latency and give you the privacy benefits. If you're not taking steps like that, then basically your ISP can see that you're mining and they can see which pool you're mining to and your mining pool can see your IP address. So, you know, you're really putting yourself in a position of being the lowest hanging fruit if you don't take any of those steps. So one thing Stratum V2 does is it at least encrypts that information. So your ISP would still be able to see that you're sending data to a mining pool URL, but they're not going to be able to see what's in that data. And you're your mining pool would still be able to see your IP address. So I do think, you know, a VPN offers protections that Stratum V2 just can't offer. At least it offers the encryption piece of it, which I think is good. But I really liked how she broke down how the Stratum V1 messaging works because this was something that I learned. So basically there's four messages that get passed back and forth between the miner and the pool. And it's the subscribe message, the authorized message, the notify message, and the submit message. If we just kind of break those down first, the ASIC machine sends a subscribe message to the pool indicating it wants to authorize itself as a worker and commence mining. If this message was successful, the pool responds with an acknowledgement. Notice that this response contains unnecessary data that cannot yet be used by the miner. Step two, the ASIC machine sends an authorized message containing its username and password login credentials for the pool. The pool responds with an acknowledgement. Notice that the password is sent over the wire in plain text, not encrypted. I thought it was interesting that she pointed that out because I always understood the password you set up in the configuration file. Like I've been setting mine to one, two, three, four. I thought it was just an arbitrary password that was only there to like prevent spam attacks on the pool. Uh, so I may not be correct about that. 
and there may be more to it. Anyways, moving on to step three, the pool immediately sends the ASIC machine a notify message that contains all the information required for the miner to commence work. And then step four, once the ASIC machine has found a valid job, it sends the information to the pool via a submit message, pool responds with an acknowledgement, and then another notify message continuing the cycle. So that's just kind of an interesting breakdown about how Stratum V1 works. And then if we go forward to, I think it was page 17, we can kind of see how Stratum V2 changes things. Sorry, I wasn't page 17 page 15. So like one interesting thing Stratum V2 will do is that the miners can just make that Stratum V1 connection to a Stratum V2 proxy server and they can run their own instance of Bitcoin. And then that proxy server can send the all the information from the miners together in one channel to the mining pool. Now, what I'd like to point out here is that they're running their own version of Bitcoin here so that they can get a state of the mempool and batch their own transactions. And what I like about this is that you no longer have the block header, the template being made by the mining pool. The miners are deciding which transactions they're going to try and put in a block and solve for. What I like about that is if you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individuals running miners that are batching their own transactions, then there's like no way you're going to get all of those individuals to decide to censor particular transactions. Whereas if in a future scenario where the vast majority of hash rate is controlled by these pools that decide to implement some sort of censorship, like we've seen happen with Marathon Mining in their OFAC compliant blocks, then it could take a lot longer for the transactions to get mined that the large pools are censoring against. Whereas if all the miners are deciding what transactions get included, then you know there's really nothing the pool can do about that. So it, it, I really think that this kind of takes some of the power out of centralized pools and transitions that power back into the hands of individuals, which I think is a good thing. I could be wrong about that, but that's just kind of the way I see it. And so I would definitely recommend checking out this article if you're interested in what Stratum V1 is and if you're interested in what's different about Stratum V2 and what that can change. Moving on to other developments, Steve Barber posted some photos from their assembly line in Lloydminster of the black boxes rolling out. It's exciting to see these all get put together and ready to hit the road. I've got some photos to share. So I actually did get, I got my black box. I got the first black box that they shipped out. You know, I'm going to be helping Steve do some documentation, some startup documentation on the black box. Um, they ship mine without any sort of sound liner. So I'm using that to try and figure out what the best liner material is to kind of help them settle on what they're going to do with the black boxes at the factory. But anyways, what I wanted to show here was that this black box has a What's Miner M31S running in it. It's currently running at almost 82 decibels. You can see in the background that the lid is open. You know, this is the temperature at the outlet vent. So there's two vents, one for the intake and one for the outlet. And the two sides are separate 
separated by a pressure barrier, and the only connection between the two sides is the ASIC. So it's bringing in cool air and then expelling hot air. The air is not mixing inside the black box. It's, it's totally separate. You can mix the air. There's a vent in there, but it doesn't have to mix. The exhaust is coming out at almost 130 degrees Fahrenheit. So what I did with mine was I got some carpet padding from Home Depot, and then I just kind of cut it out to the profile of the inside of the box. And I put the carpet padding on both the walls and on the platform and I, I wrapped the front and the back of it with carpet padding too. And then I put the ASIC in there and you can see I made a pressure barrier with some foam board and then put a piece of foam stripping across the top just to kind of seal that air gap along the top. This side of the enclosure here is all cool air and then this side is all hot air and the hot air is forced out and the cool air is is brought in. Just by the very like design of the box, the torturous path that the air has to travel through, that helps reduce the noise. But I thought the carpet padding would help bring that noise down a little bit more. Um, this is with the carpet padding. I got it down to about 55 decibels. Without the carpet padding and the lid closed, the enclosure was running at about 60 decibels. So 20 dB right off the bat, just from the enclosure itself, which is really good. My original enclosure only reduced the sound by 10 dB. So having an enclosure without any sound treatment that can reduce it 20 dB, I think is a, is a massive gain. I would like to see this number get down into the 40s. So I am gonna try a couple more materials until I kind of dial that all in. Moving on to other developments, I noticed this guide from Brains, How to Mine Bitcoin Beginner's Guide. It looks like it was published on December 15th, 2020, but I just found it a few days ago. So I thought it was worth sharing. There's a lot of really good information in here and it is a very realistic approach to looking at the prospects of mining Bitcoin. So if you're interested in mining, if you're not mining yet, then take a look at this guide and see what it would take. You know, it, it kind of breaks down is mining Bitcoin worth it? And it gives some examples like how long it's going to take you to recoup the amount of money you spend on your Bitcoin miner. Uh, and it talks about is Bitcoin mining profitable? And it gets into how to measure the CapEx versus OpEx and roll all that into your ROI. It mentions uh, hosting facilities and talks about that option a little bit. Talks about the required environment and the power capacity, internet connection, airflow, cooling, noise reduction. You know, they kind of hit on all the main points in here, how to choose an ASIC miner, what the miner specifications are, and like how to take that information and plug it into a calculator and interpret those results. Even if you're already mining, this is just kind of a good overview to kind of refresh your thought process in thinking about how your mining operation is going. And if you're totally new to mining, then this is a really great place to start because it kind of touches on all those points. Uh, in other developments, there was this article put together by Bob Burnett. And it's called Satoshi's Heel, is mining infrastructure a vulnerability that could take down Bitcoin? It's a play on Achilles heel. And you know what he's trying to do here is kind of break miners down into three different categories. You've got small miners. This would be home miners that are akin to rabbits. And you've got larger miners that have like 20 to 2,500 ASICs. And these are akin to horses. And then you've got like the mega miners that have like 5,000 or more miners. And those are 
are akin to elephants. So the rabbits are fast, uh, they're hard to catch, they can reproduce very quickly. Horses are powerful, they're also fast. Uh, they can reproduce faster than elephants, but not as fast as rabbits. You know, it's easy easier to conceal a horse than it is an elephant. Uh, and then the elephants are just, you know, they're huge, they're slow, they're difficult to move, slow to reproduce, easy to find, hard to conceal. Uh, so kind of thinking about the range and different groups of miners in those terms, he lays out some like doomsday scenarios where if the military came in and wanted to go after miners, you know, they would go after the large miners first because they're the low hanging fruit, they're easier to see. And it would take out the vast majority of hash rates. So in this scenario where like the difficulty adjustment is about to happen in a positive percentage adjustment at that point in time, then the military could potentially strike, shut down these miners and force them to turn off their ASICs. And then hash rate would crash dramatically right after a positive difficulty increase. And so what's going to happen then is that it's going to be extremely difficult to find a block. Instead of taking 10 minutes between blocks, it's going to take multiple days between blocks. And, it, and what's going to have to happen is all 2016 blocks are going to have to get mined before that next difficulty adjustment comes back down to compensate. And so instead of taking two weeks, that time frame could take thousands of days. It could take years. That would really grind Bitcoin in a way that is damaging. Is that ever going to happen? No, I don't think it is. But it is just kind of interesting to war game it and to think about what would happen in that scenario and think about, you know, what can you do as an individual to react to a situation like that? You know, it kind of comes back to, well, if all the elephants are taken down, then you're still going to have these horses running around and you're going to have these rabbits running around. They should be pretty quick to reproduce and get more hash rate online, kind of counteract that sort of an attack. And then he goes on to outline how like under nation state control over all these miners, then they could like really game the difficulty adjustments and really screw things up. It's, it's a little ridiculous in terms of like the coordinated effort it would take between nation states to pull something off like this, but it is interesting to think about just in terms of like wargaming and understanding what those threats are. And I, I really think like the, the main takeaway here from this article is that large Bitcoin miners are at a disadvantage and they are more likely to wind up in the regulatory crosshair. They're more likely to wind up being forced into some sort of ESG schemes. You know, I, I really think keeping Bitcoin permissionless and censorship resistant is going to come down to the smaller miners who can hash without asking anyone for permission. They can set up their operations wherever they want, whenever they want. They can point their hash rate to whatever pool they want. They can spin up their own pools. They can combine efforts, do something like the Laurentia pool model. I really do think that smaller miners are going to be the future of Bitcoin mining, not the large players. Another article that came out was from Steve Barber. It's called An Elephant in the Grid. And again, in this article, he's 
breaking down what sort of risks or disadvantages, I should say, the mega miners have. He goes into unnecessary transmission losses, you know, having these large power consumers on grid that are not at the source of the electricity, but downstream from there. If they're consuming all this electricity, how much of that is getting just evaporated in transmission loss, which could be corrected by having these larger facilities right next to the source of the power generation. One section of this article that I really liked was the censorship and regulatory moats. This jumped out to me because we've seen companies like Marathon be very eager to comply with regulation above and beyond the letter of the law, for example, with their OFAC compliant blocks. And I don't think that that's going to go away just because they stopped doing it to appease some complaints they were getting on social media. You know, that doesn't mean that that effort is going to go away. I think it's just been shelved until the timing is more correct. And I do think we will face an environment where large miners are looking at doing things like ESG compliance and being able to verify how their energy is produced and how efficient their ASICs are and, you know, making pushes for getting some sort of like EPA program in there or some sort of like Energy Star program in there to make sure that their site cycling out ASICs that don't meet certain efficiency requirements that are now federally mandated. Overall, I just don't see any of that working out very well for Bitcoin because it's designed to be ran as efficiently as possible. And when you start bringing in these outside forces like carbon credits, ESG initiatives, Energy Star compliance programs, regulations that say you should censor transactions even if you're not making the most in fees, is like when you start tweaking with things like that and it becomes inefficient, like these large players, just it's just not going to work. That's not how it was designed to work. And the small, smaller miners that can move quickly, that can go rogue, point their hash wherever they want. They don't have investors to answer to. They don't have regulators to answer to. Those miners are the ones that are going to be able to continue mining and hold up the network the way it should be held up without dealing with all of this red tape. Anyways, I thought this was a good article and uh, you guys should check it out. It's definitely worth the read. With that, we're going to move on to the Home Miner Hall of Fame. The first one we have up is Kukku Mining. I liked this one because this was a, a large enclosure. He says here, this is my mining setup. Think it'll have pooling capacity for four S19s running three at present, but more fiddling around and we are good. So if we take a look at his photos here, uh, yeah, dude, he built this you know floor to ceiling enclosure and he's got three S9s running in it. He's got room for one more. All said and done, you know, with three machines running, he's only at 53 decibel. I thought that was just really impressive. He's got his fan there. I'm not entirely sure where the heat is going or if it's like ducted into his HVAC system. But just in looking at this picture, you know, you can see this is like the, the intake side. So I imagine the air is coming in from underneath and then the ASICs are butted up against this wall. And so there's obviously another chamber here. Uh, I'm just not sure what he's doing with that heat once it leaves, but you know, he's got plenty of power set up on the wall here and he's going to be running four ASICs in there. So I just thought that was great and worth the share. So give him a follow on Twitter. Moving on, we've got Bitcoin underscore underscore dragon with a single, I'm thinking that's an S19. It might be an S17, uh, but he's got one miner. 
whoops, he's got one miner in the immersion bath there and he's got this cool meter that tells you the voltage, the amperage, the wattage, the frequency, the kilowatt hours that it's been running and then PF, I'm thinking that's power factor. So I'm not sure if he's if this is three phase power or not, but just turn the volume off there and hit play. So yeah, you know, he's got his ASIC in, in immersion and it's a single ASIC, small container. It looks like he's got some hoses going in and out of it. So I imagine he's got some sort of like radiator cooler in that box that's kind of in the background there. So good work. It looks good. It's working. He put uh, aftermarket fans on the ASIC. So, you know, that's kind of interesting to see that these ASICs are running in late Liquid, but he's also got these fans on him and you know his idea here is that the fans are helping circulate the cool air from the bottom or sorry not air the cool liquid from the bottom to the top and then he can kind of i imagine siphon that liquid out and into the radiator so yeah thought that was a good build and this next one so we didn't really see this one uh in operation but this comes from the coin dad on twitter so check him out and he took this old Antminer C1. This thing definitely looks like it had seen better days, but he took it all apart and gave it some TLC. And by the end of it, he had this really clean miner put back together. And I just thought that was kind of cool to see someone like refurbish a miner. So check that out on Twitter. Uh, this is this comes from Neil's News on Twitter. So check him out too. And this one looks like it's also a C1, uh, but this one seems to be like a liquid cooled version. Uh, I just thought that was kind of neat. It looks brand new so i'm not sure if he just kind of has it for you know the nostalgia or if he's actually using it to run but just kind of an interesting piece of mining history there one other thing i wanted to show was this tweet posted by brains and you know they they've got some beanies to give away and they wanted to see a few photos or video of creative home mining setups you should really check out this thread because there are just hundreds of replies in here of home mining setups and it is is just amazing to see how much of a renaissance there's been with home mining because a year ago none of this content was out there i've got some pictures of my recent endeavors posted on here but you got bikes and bitcoin on here you've got people wrapping their asics in mattresses you got people showing their the drawings that they've been doing people have been heating their houses with asics they've been putting them up in lofts in their barns uh they've been putting them behind vents outdoors doors in their own enclosures that they've built and then camouflage that comes from Denver Bitcoin. They've got ASICs in coolers. They've got ASICs in immersion systems with radiators. <laughs> You've got crypto cloaks with piles of stuff that they've been building with their fan shroud adapters and their mining setup. I mean, you've got S9s in people's attics. You've got as you've got what's miners in people's basements running into their HVAC system. You've got immersion tanks. This is BTC underscore underscore dragon again, or Bitcoin underscore underscore dragon again. The list just goes on and on and on. And it is just a parade of home miners. Definitely worth checking out all the creativity, all these awesome solutions people have been coming up with. None of this existed a year ago. Nobody was sharing this stuff. Nobody was putting it out there. So it just makes me excited to see what the year ahead is going to bring. This one I really liked because they've got a miner in inside their greenhouse and they've got some pot plants in there too. I thought that was funny, but 
you know, for anyone who's like spreading FUD about mining Bitcoin at home, like all you have to do is look at this thread like not this many people are going to get it wrong. You know what I mean? Like this many people aren't going to be doing this if it doesn't make sense. It's not just like altruism that drives home miners to mine Bitcoin. It's being done because it makes sense in terms of acquiring non-KYC Bitcoin. It makes sense in terms of dollar cost averaging through your utility bill. It makes sense in terms of getting your hands on some hardware and figuring out the problems around heat and noise that are unique to your home situation and using that to have hash power in your hands and not having to rely on someone else to mine those transactions for you. Now you're participating in it. And together, all of these people combined, they're going to be unstoppable. It is, it is turning into an unstoppable force. It just goes on and on. There's just no limit to what these people are doing with Bitcoin miners at home. And it's just really awesome to see. Check that out. I could scroll through that one all day. Next home miner, he was in the last thread, but Bikes and Bitcoin did a video showing how he's got his S9 in his basement and how he's bringing in fresh air from outside. He took the fans off of it and put these adapters in their place. And then he's using an inline fan to move the air through the ASIC. So there's actually no fans moving air on the ASIC itself, except for the power supply. But that inline fan is the one is the driving force moving all the air and it's going into his home's air return system to use that heat to heat his entire house. So I thought that was really cool. So check him out on Twitter. Okay, and with that, we're gonna move into privacy. So for privacy, there was this vice prime minister from Ukraine and you know, there's a war going on between Russia and Ukraine. And what he's saying here is, I'm asking all major crypto exchanges to block addresses of Russian users. It's crucial to freeze not only the addresses linked to Russian and Belarusian politicians, but also to sabotage ordinary users. So I was really taken aback when I saw that. I mean, you've got somebody in a position of being a head of state call for the censorship of people just based on the country that they're from. This isn't a whole lot different than what the Canadian government did re recently by freezing the bank accounts of people who uh, could be tied to the trucker convoy. What's important for me in this example that I'd like to highlight is just what kind of measures these statists are willing to go to to harm other people. So, you know, this is a head of state talking about using cryptocurrency exchanges to freeze the movement of funds of people from another country, not even his own country. Not that any of these exchanges are going to comply with the request. I don't know, maybe one or two of them will if they're based out of Ukraine or something. But the point is, is that if these statists are making requests like this, you can kind of see based on the trajectory we've been on the last couple of years where this is all going. Like if you're not taking self-custody of your Bitcoin, you are going to lose control of it. It will be frozen. It will be seized. You will not be able to transact. In my personal opinion, if you're not complying with all state 
requirements such as vaccine mandates or wearing a mask, or if you just have a low social credit score, you will be cut off from legacy system financial services. It is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. Your freedoms have been eroded year after year after year. That is never going to stop. These status are never going to stop coming for you. If you value privacy, if you value being able to speak to your family, if you value being able to transact with your own money the way that you want to transact, you need to start taking steps to guard those freedoms. If you don't, they will be taken from you. This is not a drill. This is not hypothetical. This is not me trying to conjure up fear, uncertainty, doubt. Like this is happening. It is happening in Western nations. It is happening in Eastern Bloc nations. It is happening all around the globe. You may think it's not going to happen to you. You are dead wrong. It is going to happen to you. It is happening to your neighbors. It is only a matter of time before that pendulum swings and you find yourself on the wrong side of it and you are completely cut off from legacy system financial services and the only option you're going to have left at that point is bitcoin and the only way bitcoin works is if you have custody over it if you're trusting a third-party custodian to hold that bitcoin for you you're going to get cut off from that too and then you're not going to be able to transact at all you're going to be reduced to trying to barter whatever you have in your storage unit to your neighbors to try and come up with some cash. And little by little, the places you're gonna be able to spend that cash are gonna disappear as well. You don't have to live under that kind of tyranny. You can opt out, you can use Bitcoin. Bitcoin can do that for you. Bitcoin can enable that freedom. It is permissionless. You don't need to ask anyone's permission to use it. You can just do that. It is unstoppable. It is censorship resistant. Nobody can stop you from making that transaction. You can just make that transaction and the network is going to accept it. But if you don't start taking those steps today, if you don't install your own wallet on your desktop or your phone or get a hardware wallet, if you don't withdraw your Bitcoin from the exchange, if you don't start learning how to transact with these tools and using this stuff, then by the time you actually need it, it's gonna to be too late. You're not gonna know what to do. You're not gonna know where to start. You're not gonna be able to find the information you need to make those transactions happen. You're really screwing yourself over by not doing this stuff today. Get your coins off the exchanges, get your own wallet, back up your seed phrases, stamp them into metal, write them down on paper, put it in a safe. Be prepared to make transactions that they don't want you to make. You will be labeled a criminal. You will be labeled an extremist. You will be labeled a terrorist. They will use those terms to demonize you and to criminalize your activity that is perfectly legal today. Once that pendulum swings past you, that perfectly legal activity is then going to be illegal and you're going to be demonized for it. You're going to be discredited for it. You're not going to be able to access the things that the people on the other side of the pendulum get the privilege of accessing like financial services. So get it together. Start practicing. This stuff is coming and it's not going to stop. That's all I really wanted to say about that one. Moving on, uh, Sparrow Wallet version 1.6 released today, and this is a huge, huge release because they included BIP47. If you're not familiar with what BIP47 is or what it does, Sparrow Wallet has implemented this BIP, making it possible for you to display 
a payment code instead of a Bitcoin address. This payment code will not reveal knowledge of any other payments you've received. Whereas if you just post like a static Bitcoin address on your website, then anyone can grab that address and look it up on a block explorer and they can see all the other donations or payments that have been made to that address. And then they can see, they can follow those on chain and see where they go from there. And they can also follow them backwards on chain and see where they came from. With a uh, BIP47, what you can do is generate a QR code that you can display on your website or wherever you want. And people can scan that QR code with their BIP47 enabled wallet. And then what it does is it creates this link on chain using information from your wallet and the sender's wallet to make like a new list of addresses that can be used between those two wallets. And only those two wallets know what those addresses are. So you can send in donations to somebody. Anyone else looking at that payment code is not gonna be able to see what payments went into that payment code. Yeah, your transactions are still gonna be on chain, but there's not gonna be anything that an outside observer can glean from that payment code to figure out what or where those transactions came from. And also the other thing too with BIP47 is you can start making these transactions called stowaways. And what a stowaway transaction will do is it's a it's a collaborative transaction between both a sender and the receiver. It obfuscates the amount being sent. So the receiver puts some Bitcoin as some inputs and the sender puts some Bitcoin in as some inputs. And then when the outputs come out the other side, they have different amounts because the receiver is getting back their initial input in addition to the amount that the sender is giving to them. And then there's the change that goes back to the sender as well. So it breaks those on-chain heuristics and helps people maintain their privacy. So you can spend in a way where the amount is unknown. I'm really excited that the Sparrow Wallet team has implemented BIP47. This is a massive leap forward for Bitcoin privacy. Now there's two wallets out there that have it implemented. It's Sparrow Wallet and Samurai Wallet. So I'm just gonna pull up the Samurai Wallet Paynim server. And this is what it looks like when you get a Paynim in Samurai Wallet or now in Sparrow Wallet, you get this robot avatar. These are all unique and it has a unique payment code. And what you can do is we'll just look up the directory here. So we'll just look at this first one, billowing fog 657. So each avatar, each robot avatar has a unique name, a unique avatar. It has a unique payment code. And so what you can do is you can post this QR code on your website and you can start taking donations from other people who have paynims enabled in their wallet. And so someone will just scan that QR code with their wallet. It makes the on-chain link between the two wallets and generates the addresses that these two wallets can use back and forth between each other. Nothing about this payment code reveals any of that information to any outside observer. So if you haven't tried Paynims yet, try them out because you no longer have to just put like a static Bitcoin QR code on your website or set up a BTC pay server to generate new addresses each time. 
Like there's a lot of good reasons to stay away from address reuse and that's gonna become more and more important as time goes on. Get used to using these pay nims. It, they are a powerful tool that can improve your privacy tremendously and they're available today. Like you can download Sparrow Wallet to your desktop and start using this today. It's been available on Samurai Wallet on uh, Android Mobile for a long time. But if you don't have an Android mobile, well, now you can still get access to the Paynims through downloading this to your desktop. So check it out. It's highly worth it. And with that, that's all I've got for this show. So I hope you got something out of it and I'll see you in another 2016 blocks.